G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. Today with Jeff Vines, author, pastor, apologist and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word. The more God pours His Spirit into you and the more intentional you get about being a good Christian, the more conflict you can expect. Today with Jeff Vines. Hello, welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for joining me in our next series of messages from Pastor Jeff. Today, we've got a big question. What is Satan's primary objective? Pastor Jeff has a message from his Deception series for us, and he's speaking from the book of Matthew, chapter 3. His message is about who and what the devil is. This should be very interesting, so let's hear from Pastor Jeff now on Today with Jeff Vines. Okay, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. I'll give you a moment to get there. If you missed last week, man, you missed the beginning of a series called Deception. We're looking in the series, the role that Satan plays in the world and in your life. I can hardly ever remember a pastor going through a series dedicated to the work, the power, the influence of the evil one. So I really encourage you to go back and listen to that first sermon so you can kind of get up to speed. And I I was hoping to get a good illustration this week for the message this weekend. It usually seems to happen that way. I went to the Angels game on Friday night. And uh, this would be a good time for all you Dodger fans who are sick and tired of Pastor Jeff and his attitude toward the Dodgers to get me back. It'd be a good time just to scream something, that's fine. Okay. I can take it like a man because I went to the Angels game and it was like nine to one by the third inning and we've lost three in a row and it's not that funny now and I don't know, did we win today or did we lose? We lost, so four in a row. So basically here's what's happened. Uh, The devils have come to town and whooped up on the Angels for four straight. So that kind of threw that out. But I said something in that first sermon that I hope none of you ever forget. And I said this, I said that there, according to the Bible, is an invisible world that greatly impacts the visible world. That there is something unseen that greatly impacts your life, what is seen. And the leader of that unseen world, at least the evil side, is the devil, and he is real. Originally his name was Lucifer, he was an angel. And he wasn't just any angel. He was the most beautiful, the most powerful, and the wisest angel who was given free will just like you and me and rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him. And now he has but one goal in mind, and that is to bring havoc and death into your life. 
So when you're having an argument with your wife, with your spouse, and you think of these really cruel things to say, they don't come from God. When you're thinking of something really mean that you could say to one of your children or to a parent, that doesn't come from God. When you wonder why your life is in shambles to some degree, that your job's not going the way it ought to go, that you seem to have conflict after conflict, and it appears that when you really get serious about your faith, that something from the outside comes and makes everything difficult, that is no accident because there is an unseen world, an invisible world that greatly impacts what is seen. Now, I, I, I know that when I said that last week, I could tell I looked out and there were some people looking at me like, Pastor Jeff, no, I liked you. I mean, I was just starting to like this church, but this is one of the reasons I got out of church. You guys are crazy. Come on, this is the 21st century. Really? The devil? Ooh. Now, I want you to think about something. If you don't believe in the devil... That means you have the lowest possible view of human nature. If you don't believe in the devil, you have the lowest possible view of human nature. How do I get that? Well, you think about it. That means you believe that things like the Holocaust, six million innocent Jews, okay? Concentration camps, torture, punishment, or genocides like in Rwanda or other places for the last hundred years or slavery, or oppression, uh, any kind of racism with this blatant brutality. If you don't believe in the devil, you believe that man is capable of all those things without any outside influence. And I said last week, if you're a secular humanist, you can't have it both ways. If you really believe that man is basically good, then you've got to explain the origin of evil. You can't have it both ways. And I said that the Holocaust is about much more than just Hitler. Slavery was about much more than just economics. There's an intelligence behind it. There is an invisible world that greatly impacts what is seen. And the whole point, folks, is the same voices that spoke to Hitler and the Hutus in Rwanda speaks to you every day of your life. Now, you say, okay, Pastor Jeff, I got that. Tell me the details Tell me how I can fend off the fiery darts of the evil one. Tell me how I can have victory. And you want me to get down to the nitty gritty, and we will in the weeks to come. But first of all, this weekend, I got to talk about the 40,000 foot view. What is Satan's primary objective concerning everybody in the room? Now, let me tell you, if you're a seeker and you're still on the journey and you haven't committed to Christ, we respect that at Christ Church of the Valley. We are glad that you're here. We're glad that you're seeking. But I want to tell you, for you... His goal is simply to keep you in an area called deception, whereby you would never cross over into faith. So he's going to do whatever possible to keep you blinded, because he knows once you cross over, your eyes will be open and everything will begin to change. So those of you who wonder why your teenage children will not come to Christ, those of you who wonder why, you know, I've shared my testimony, they see the world around them, but they still don't come. Remember, the Bible says that the God of this age has blinded the mind of the unbeliever. What they need is a miracle and an eye-opening experience that only the Spirit of God can give. So that's the, the evil one's role in your life. But I'm not talking about you. I'm, right now, I'm talking about those of you who have decided that you want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. Then there is one primary goal the evil one has in your life. Stay with me. Matthew chapter 3, we begin to discover it. And I'm going to summarize the first part for the sake of time. It's the baptism of Jesus. Jesus comes to John the Baptist. 
John sees him coming. Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Jesus says, John, I need you to baptize me. John says, whoa, no, I'm in need for you to baptize me. I mean, you think about that. That's like Billy Graham coming to me and say, Pastor Jeff, I need to confess my sins to you. I said, well, you're Billy Graham, and I need to confess my sins to you. And of course, we both, the truth is, need to confess our sins to the Father. However, you can understand the predicament John is in. Here's Jesus. Jesus says, baptize me. John says, I don't want to. Jesus says, you need to do it to fulfill all righteousness. The plan of God needs to come to fruition. So John baptizes Jesus. The Bible says the sky opens up and the Holy Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And then there's a voice from heaven that says, behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now the question I have with all of you, why was God pleased? Why was the father pleased with the son? Why was Jesus baptized? Is it because he, had to need, he needed his sins washed away, but he was sinless. So why did Jesus need to be baptized? I want to show you a verse that many of us passed right on by. Luke chapter two, verse 52. The Bible says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God. Now stay with me. If Jesus was God in the flesh, that means he'd be omniscient. He'd know everything, right? So if you know everything, how can you grow in knowledge and wisdom and stature? If you already know everything, how can you get smarter? And of course, the answer is, in Philippians 2, we learned a few weeks ago, that when Jesus came to planet Earth, he set aside some of the privileges associated with being deity. He did that in order that he may live the lives you and I are called to live, so that he could say in Hebrews that he's been tempted in every way, just like us. I mean, if you're God and you already know how everything's gonna turn out, how's that temptation? So he set aside some of those things not so that he would know really, so that you would know that he knows. So he set those aside so that he's about 12 years old at this point. And the Bible says that he's growing in wisdom and stature. Then he's around 30 years old and he comes to John to be baptized. And somewhere between 12 and the age of 30, it, it begins to dawn on Jesus. That is, it's revealed to him by God the Father who he really is and the call on his life to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And when he's baptized by John, in effect, it's his consecration. And that's why God is pleased because he knows now that Jesus has accepted the role of Messiahship and now he's going to obey the will of the Father, gonna obey the calling on his life to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. Now, would you like to guess what happens immediately after that? Matthew chapter four, verse one. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Wow, are you with me? Baptism is always followed by battle. As soon as you immerse your life into anything that has to do with God, watch out, the battle is next. First he hears a voice from heaven, then there's a voice from hell. First there is comfort, then there's conflict. First there is joy and strength, then there's weakness. First there's water, then there's desert. Now I'm gonna push you on this for a minute, stay with me. Because I think most of us got it all backwards. You think about it. What if you were able to live the... All right, let's say right now, just imagine this. And for some of you, it's going to be really hard. All of us, it's going to be hard. Imagine you're living the perfect holy life. Oh, yes, you too. And man, you, you pray and you're reading your Bible. And when God tells you to do something, you obey. You don't even think about not obeying. You face temptation, easy for you. Just do the right thing. Now, if you get to that point in your life, 
What do you think is going to happen next? You think about this. How many of you saw The Sound of Music? Now, a lot of you are too young to see that. How many of you rented it or saw it on Netflix because you couldn't find anything better? I think I'll watch this. Now, Sound of Music. Okay. Uh, Christopher Plummer, who was in that movie, called it The Sound of Mucus. He hated that movie. But one of the songs that she sings in the movie goes like this. Why is my life going so well? Why are good things happening to me? Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. That's exactly the way we think. If my life is going well, it's because obviously I'm holy. And if trouble comes in crisis or conflict, it's because I'm not holy, I'm not good. And if I look at you and I think, you know what, my life's better than yours, then I'm gonna assume I'm better than you are. And if my life is worse than you, I'm gonna assume that I'm worse sinner somehow than you are. Well, Jesus comes along and turns that whole thing on its head because he was the one who lived a sinless life. And how did his life turn out? Have you ever read the Gospels, man? Constant conflict, trials, temptations, and it ends up by they crucify him on a cross. The writers are putting the baptism and the temptation, by the way, just so you know, only two of the gospels out of the four record the birth, but all four record the baptism followed by the temptation. And the reason is the writers want us to know one valuable truth, that the more God pours his spirit into you and the more intentional you get about being a good Christian, the more conflict you can expect. Are you listening? Can I just let that sit with you just for a second? Are you surprised, really, when you decide, I'm going to start reading my Bible every day, and the first day you sit down to read it, there's a crisis with your children in the next room? You think think that's an an accident? I'm going to really start praying. So you get to work a little early. You know, you pull out your Bible on your little iPhone or whatever it is you have. You start reading, and within two seconds, the phone rings, and it's an emergency. You think that's accidental? You say, say, I'm going to start serving. So you start serving, but you have a bad experience and somebody offends you and hurts your feelings. And you go home and you say, I'm not doing that anymore. You, You think that's accidental? Let that sink in just a moment. Baptism, battle. And the reality is if all that's true, then the adverse is true. If your life is peaceful and tranquil with no problems whatsoever, it means that you're not walking in the spirit. It means that you're not attempting anything great for God. It means that there's not a passion in your life to be pleasing to God. Therefore, you're not a threat to the opposition. So he's just gonna leave you alone and go bother somebody that matters. There's invisible world that impacts the visible world. And as soon as you immerse yourself in the kingdom of God, baptism is followed by battle. Now. I want to show you how this works in Jesus' life. And then I got one point and that's it. The first two temptations I can't deal with. I just want to mention, we're going to concentrate on the third one because the first two are like two boxers in the ring. Just throwing jabs, you know, just throwing jabs to try to find out the agility or the ability of the other boxer. Not going to throw the big right hook, not going to go the knockout punch yet, just going to test. So the devil says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, command these stones to be bred. Now, there's really nothing wrong with that. He's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. The guy's hungry. What's wrong with turning a few rocks into bread? The problem is Satan is tempting Jesus. Are you going to use your power really only for God's purposes? Or are you going to use some of your power for your own selfish purposes? Jesus passes the test. He goes to the next temptation. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. He takes Jesus to a high place and says, throw yourself down, man. Throw your- God will save you. You know what the problem there is? The temptation is to presume upon God. It's the difference between being a manipulator and somebody who cooperates with God. 
Know the difference between a manipulator and a cooperator? The manipulator says, I'm going to make all my plans, what I want to do, what I want to achieve, and I'm going to get God involved to help me. That's a manipulator. A cooperator says, here I am with open hands. God, what do you want to do with my life? I'm in. I'm all in. Let's go. Jesus passes that test. And then the third test comes in verse 8, Matthew 4. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now look up. Okay. By the way, uh, some of you, when you come to church on the weekend, you just feel so sleepy. Okay. Guess where that come from? There's an invisible world that greatly impacts the visible world. All right. So wake up and listen, because this is important. The same temptation that the devil gives to Jesus is the same one he gives you and me. And it's a very simple one. He's saying to Jesus, now remember, there are two kingdoms direct, uh, diametrically opposed to each other, okay? Both are trying to grow. Both depend on the citizens of their kingdoms to grow. So the devil takes Jesus and says, look at all this, it too can be yours if you just worship me. And the devil says, if I can just get Jesus' focus off saving the world to possessing the world, then his allegiance will be to the world rather than God. Let me say it one more time. (laughs) If I can just get Jesus' focus off saving the world to possessing the world, his allegiance will be to the world rather than to God. In other words, if I can just get Jesus to give ultimate worth to the world instead of the will of God, then I will stifle the advancement of the kingdom, it's the same thing he does to you. Folks, he does not have to get you to hate him. All he has to do is distract you a little from the purpose for which you were called. And then the kingdom will be stifled and it will not grow. So how does he do that? He just gets your attention focused and he gets you enamored with something that really is not sinful, it's really good. So it goes back to this whole idea, if I can just get that girl. So if you're single and you want to be married, you just get possessed with the idea of getting married. So he distracts you with that. You're just consumed with it so that she becomes an idol to you. What is an idol? You trust them, you obey them, and you serve them. And so now what is good becomes an idol. You're possessed with this. You're distracted. You're not thinking about God. You're thinking about this. Your job, your promotion, more money, more stuff, more houses, more cars, and especially in affluent America. More things to do out there, more clubs to join. More things to be a part of, more parties to go to, more socials to attend. If you can just get your schedule so busy that you have no more time for God, it's good. It's all he has to do. So I think that every person who calls themselves a fully devoted follower of Christ has to ask themselves five questions. The first one is this. Number one, what is my greatest fear? Now you're going to have fears in your life, but what is your greatest fear? And there's only one right answer to that question according to the New Testament. Your greatest fear, now this is after you're saved, okay? After you've become a fully devoted follower, your greatest fear is that you'd go through your entire life and God would not use you for his purposes of expanding his kingdom on this planet. That should be your greatest fear, that you'd go through your whole life and it's all about you and not about God. Second question you have to ask, what am I most passionate about? Now you're gonna have a lot of passions. I have passions, I'm passionate about golf. I am. I'm passionate about preaching. I'm passionate about the word. I'm passionate about friendship. I'm passionate about coffee. Although I can't have any for the last nine months, I'm still passionate about it. I'm passionate about dark chocolate. 
But what is the thing that, I'm not ready for the third one yet. What is the thing? (laughs) What is the thing that drives me? What am I most passionate about? Why do I get up in the morning? What do I hope happens in that day? There's only one answer. And the answer is this, that God would use me somehow this day to expand his kingdom on this planet. Which brings me to the third question. Okay. What activity of my life expands the kingdom of God? What are you doing in your life every day that at least expands the kingdom of God in some small way? Now, focus here just a second. If you're like me, now, did you hear me say that? If you're like me, then here's the temptation that you fight every day. You fight the temptation for your life to be about one happiness fix after the next, one pleasurable satisfaction to the next pleasurable satisfaction. You wake up, oh, what am I gonna have for breakfast? Give me Cheerios, banana nut Cheerios, maybe cinnamon apple Cheerios. Ooh. What am I going to have? Where am I going to get my coffee on the way to work? What am I going to have for lunch? What am I going to have for dinner? What's on television tonight? What movies are showing? And we move from one happiness fix to the next. When if we are truly a fully devoted follower of God, our greatest passion and the thing we're thinking about is how will God use me today to build his kingdom on this earth? Because I know that's the primary goal of my life. Which brings the fourth question. And it looks out of place. What are my spiritual gifts? You say, well, wait, 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 hey, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, how can you fill the hole in the kingdom of God that you were designed and created to fill? What are they? Because what God does is match up your spiritual giftings with your spiritual passion, and then you become the perfect candidate to fill this role in the kingdom of God. Five. To what do I give ultimate worth? Now, I know this is kind of, this kind of encapsulates the whole list here, but worth is the word from which we get our word worship. What ultimately do you worship? What do you give ultimate worth to? Folks, I guess what I'm trying to ask you, what are you doing with your days? What do you do with your day? Is it all about you? Is there some activity in your life? Is there something you're doing that is building the kingdom of God? That's your purpose now. You were saved to be sanctified, yes, but your purpose now is to build the kingdom of God and it would be expanded through your life. What are you doing with your day? Proverbs 11, 28 says, a life devoted to the things is a dead life. A life devoted to things is a dead life, a stump. A God-shaped life is a flourishing tree. And some of us, see, even, even a baby agrees with me. He's, <laughs> he, he's just saying amen. It's okay. She's just saying amen. Amen. Did you hear? Tell him, preacher. Let me translate that for you. All I'm trying to say is Jesus had a destination in mind. He had a calling. He knew what it was. And the devil tried to distract him through many, many ways. But Jesus stayed the course. And my question to all of you, have you stayed the course? Now listen, this is the end. I mean, the real, really the end. There's a call on everybody's life in this room. Everybody has a call. How do you know that? Well, I go back to Psalm 139 where David talks about we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Two beautiful Hebrew words. Wonderfully, you know, is a word that's very difficult to translate into English. The Hebrew word is intricate details, which means that God created you with intricate detail. Nobody's quite like you, and he made you like that so that you would fill a role in the kingdom of God and its expansion. Nobody exhibits their gifts quite like you. 
And then that Hebrew word translated uh, fearfully is really our English word awesome. And the whole idea when you put these two together is that when you're functioning in your sweet spot, in the role that God calls you to function in, when you're playing your role in the kingdom of God, that people are going to stand back and they're going, wow, that's awesome. Look at that, man. Look at that person. They're right where they need to be. They fit that. Jeremiah 1.5 says that while you're in your mother's womb, God shaped and formed you. But listen to 1 Peter 2.9 if you're still unconvinced. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We're all pastors. If you think I'm the only pastor in this room, you're missing the whole point of the New Testament. We're all priests now. We're all pastors. We all have a calling on our life, but we also have a distraction And I'm asking you to identify what the distraction is and set it aside, all the things that distract you and set your mind on the goal and ask God how he's gonna use you to impact his kingdom because you all have a call. Everybody has a call. Now, end, end. Pastor Jeff, what is my call? I don't know, but I can tell you how to find it. You find your calling like you find your spouse through the process of elimination. You date the wrong girl till you find the right one. That's how it works. You get busy serving and you say, I don't like this area. It doesn't resonate and you move on. When I was 16 years old, my youth pastor came to me and said, Jeff, I think you ought to lead the teenage Bible study this weekend. What do you think? No, I can't. I don't want to do this. Yeah, I think you can do it. Okay, I'll try. I did it. I liked it. I did it next week. And the next week I did it for six months. And I came to the conclusion, if I was going to continue to do this, I better learn some more stuff. So I went to a college on basketball scholarship where I could also learn the word, kind of like an APU. So I played basketball, learned the word. Now I met a girl, a beautiful woman who took me to Africa. And when we got to Africa, I was going to be the head basketball coach at Zimbabwe University and work with Campus Crusade. 10 days after we arrived, the missionaries there lost their work permits. So the other missionaries came and said, Jeff, it's either you or nobody. We need a preacher at the English speaking church in the city of Harare. It's either you or nobody. I threw up every Saturday night for three months. (laughs) I never intended to be a preacher, but I started doing it sick and all. And I started learning that I liked it, that I really liked it. But again, after a while I ran out of material. So I felt I needed to go to seminary. So I went to seminary and then ended up in New Zealand for 10 years, then Savannah, Georgia, and now here I am because somebody put some confidence in me and I took the first step and along the way, through the process of elimination, discovered my calling. See, some of you, when you think of calling, you think, oh man, he's talking about service and I'm gonna really hate that. See, that's not a calling. A calling is something that you can't go to sleep at night without doing. It's a holy discontent. There's something in all of you that wires you that when you come into contact with that thing, you'll cry, you'll weep, and you can't wait to be involved in it because you know you were built for this. This is about you genuinely finding your calling. That's ultimately what it's about, helping people go from darkness into light. Go out, I mean, with great courage and vigor, Turn left, left, that's business class, left. Right is economy, you don't wanna go there, left. Okay, go do it. 
Thanks for joining me on Today with Jeff Vines. Wow. I hope that message has impressed on your heart to go and find your calling. Or if you've already found it, keep moving towards God in all you do. Next time we have more in this series. It's a message about the temptation of Christ. I'm simply saying that in the first temptation, Satan is simply trying to bring doubt into Jesus' mind about God's trustworthiness and care and his identity as the Son of God. Today with Jeff Vines. For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au forward slash Jeff Vines. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.